Hey, this is Eastlake BBA, and this is our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you. We hope this builds your faith. Enjoy the message. Hi, I'm Luis, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm very grateful to be here tonight. Um, so, mental obsession. Let me just start by reading. I'm going to jump all the way to page... Uh, 43, and it says, the big book says, once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. And so, um, you know, just, let me just share a little story from when I was a kid, that kind of will help explain, you know, uh, my background. Uh, when I was in junior high, uh, by the time I got into junior high, I got picked on a lot. Uh, coming into junior high, I think I was like 5'4", five 5'5", five five, which made me a little taller than most of the kids. I had big shoulders. So I was big enough for the eighth graders to basically think I was one of them. So they were just, I was just constantly being picked on. And uh, at some point, I remember I told a friend of mine, that's it. And I walked up to the guy who had just bumped me hard, and I knocked him down. And that set off a chain of events, which by the time I rolled into eighth grade, I had like seven guys rolling with me deep. And where, suddenly, where I was the one being picked on, I was the bully. Like, I had that school down, like, I just went to a party, like, in the summertime, and people were still talking about what, you know, what they, what they thought of me in the sense of back then, you know, and, I, and it, like, the impression that I had made, and um, I ended up, you know, got myself into a lot of trouble, I was very reactive, uh, I shared it in a previous meeting where I was quick to to throw the first punch and because uh, quite effective and there was this time when there was a new kid and he was funnier and he was better looking than me and I got threatened by it and he said something towards me and I stepped up to him and suddenly we were going to be in a fight. We were going to be in a fight uh, the next day I think so there's like 24 hours to set this thing up. And I went to my friend whose, whose brother was associated with gang members and, you know, I asked him if I could get some backup. And, you know, but what I didn't realize that the other kid lived in an apartment building and he, he had a lot of backup by, just by where he lived. So by the time that I kind of basically did the calculation, the math, I realized we didn't have the numbers. And so instead of waiting to, for after school, where I knew this thing was just going to, because I had seen it before, that I had seen how, how these things just escalate, I decided to basically uh, bring the fight during PE, and that way I could avoid the drama after school. And that's what I did. And the kid was quicker, and I took his punches, and I think I landed maybe two. By the time we got into the principal's office, um, you know, even, you know, point is this, 
By the time I got in the principal's office, and then the next day I get called in, because I got my parents had to pick me up, the principal called us in the next day and said, I don't want to see that again. He said, what, the mayhem that happened after school because of you two is just unacceptable. There was police uh, presence for the next few days at the school to make sure things had calmed down and some things would happen and eventually I would take my mom's offer and go to a new high school and get a fresh start. And um, at that new high school, I made new friends. I was on track to, like I said before, go to San Diego State. I discovered alcohol and that pretty much began the next series of consequences related to alcohol that I would not basically get that ride into San Diego State. But the reality is this, I've been fighting my whole life. You know, and before it was all this external, but it was as a result of what was happening inside, you know? And this is before alcohol was there. And so the reason I bring it up, because if we jump now into page 23, it says, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle of motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like philosophy of the man who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can feel the ache. I mean, it's like starting to, to describe the insanity of what my life looked like, you know, um, towards the end. Uh, if we jump further in the reading, it says, but in their hearts, they really don't know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There's obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game but they often suspect that they are down for the count. And I've shared before, which is, my family really was just asking me to figure out how to control my drinking. And I think that was just part of that vicious cycle, that, which is, you know, um, I was trying to, to control something that's bigger than me, but I didn't know that. And so, the tragic, the tragic, and I'll continue reading, the tragic truth is that if a man is a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. And it says, it says, uh, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force, the memory of the suffering and the humiliation of even a week or a month ago, we are without defense against the first drink. You know, and um, we, you know, up until this point, like I understand, like I, I put the stuff in me and I break out wanting more and I'm like, I, you know, I can't even, I can't stop. But this is talking about the fact that I'm always thinking about it. Towards the end, you know, I was constantly waking up from blackouts, telling myself there's no way I can do this again. And yet by 6 p.m. I had a hundred, as it says, alibis, excuses, reasons, 
good or bad, celebrating, you know? Um, even winning a little baseball game, as I shared last night at a different meeting. You know, there's a million reasons why I would drink. And it says, when this sort of thinking is fully established, an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably paced, placed himself beyond human aid, unless locked up, he may die or go permanently insane. Once again, it's like, when I was a kid, I saw a man walk out of a pharmacy down at TJ. I was about seven or nine, and he, looked, he opened a bottle of rubbing alcohol and took a swig of it, and then he just yelled, ah! I'll never forget it. I was like, that's crazy. And that, to me, was a definition of craziness, insanity. But I was so blind to seeing my own insanity until I got here. Like, I was just in this struggle. I was in this fight. And um, if I move forward to page 25, it says, but we saw that it really worked for others. And we had to come to believe in the hopelessness, hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living in. And honestly, I came in here completely broken, desperate as a drowning man. And, um, and, and I knew that, there, that I had nothing left to, to put up a fight against alcoholism. I was done. I was tired of being tired. And it says, the great fact is just this and nothing less. That we have, well, I'm actually, no, let me move. Sorry. I got to jump forward. I got to jump forward. Hmm. Page four. There was a guy named Will that used to go to the Old Town Manning. And this is, I first heard him say, self-help is crack. And that made so much sense to me because I have so many books on self-help that, uh, that I was basically reading to try to figure it out. How to fight alcoholism on my own and I never figured it out. He was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms but he was long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that this humiliating experience plus knowledge he had acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. And I've seen people come in here and buy this big book, big book and hear us and be like, all right, I'm good, thanks. Because that's was my attitude. I came here for you guys to give me the tools so I can go back out there and start trying to rebuild my sandcastle. And I've seen people do that, come in here and be like, just tell me how to do this on my own so I can go back out there. And, and you know, um, I think that's why these meetings are important, so we can share experience, strength, and hope. So we can share the fact that alcoholism is a beast, and we don't have enough strength of slave. Um, there's another paragraph here that says, I'd rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink, but I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned, you know? And it's like, um, there was a time where I was sober, 
I was in my mid twenties for about a year and a half. I had just smashed another car, and I just lost another relationship, and I had made a decision to to stop. And um, but stop. But the difference was this time, but not actually quit forever. It was just say it just stopped. I needed a break, you know, and so. I'm gonna go to Bill Stort at page 12. I like Bill Stort. And I like the part when his buddy shows up. Let's see. He says, my musings were interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old friend asked if he might come over, he was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed, rumor had it, he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wonder how he had escaped. And that's interesting because the book in the beginning, it says, basically, I just have to be, am I interested? Am I interested in what the doctor has to say? You know, it's like, and the most powerful thing that when we begin this workshop is the set aside prayer, which I'll read to us now. God, please enable me to set aside everything I think I know for an open mind and a new experience. Help me, help me see the truth about my need to come to believe in a power greater than myself. And so Bill tells us that he's, that in essence, I wonder how he had escaped. And his friend tells him, he tells him about the fact that, uh, he says, I've got religion. I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had this starey-eyed look. Yes, the boy was on fire, all right. I mean, how many of us are not on fire after, we, after this thing clicks for us? You know? And so, but bless his heart, let him rant. And I'll skip forward, and it says, in the matter of a fact, where he told me how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment, they had told him of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. He had come to pass his experience along to me. I mean, I've had the opportunity to show up twice for one of our brothers that I first met here and, and witness miracles, witness mercy and grace be extended to our brothers where they were both looking at seven years of prison time. To me, if I cared to have it, I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested, I had to be, for I was hopeless. And that's how I was when I showed up. Until you guys let me share, I was all stuttering and crying, sitting in the back room at Free At Last. And, and remember you guys said, let us love you until you learn to love yourself. And if I keep reading on Bill's story, it says, uh, I just lost my, oh, here we go, page 12. This is Bill's second step. My friend suggested when this seemed a novel idea, he said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years 
I stood in the sunlight at last. And that was the case for me too. When I first got here, the group was my higher power. I, you know, I called it HP. Because I didn't know God, I didn't trust Him. And uh, I had walked away from Him so long ago. And so uh, that's how I started, you know. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I saw that the growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. Thus I was convinced that God is concerned with us, with humans, when we want him enough. And at long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. The scales of pride of prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. And that's my story. When I first got here, I was so blind. You know, I had been living my life basically going down some dead end. I was completely disconnected from my family, from love, from God. And how many much more time? And, um, and then at some point, you know, the mental obsession cleared for me. I started in January, the workshop, and through my writings, I've been able to go back in time, and it was in mid-March of 2015 when I wrote that the mental obsession was gone. And so, going back to the story I told you, you know, the, the insanity was... Um, it's as if every night I was getting up to try to defend something, which was my old ideas, to try to put up this defense. And yet, every day, every time, these barbarians were burning it down. And yet, the insanity was I was trying to rebuild all by myself. And I was, and as this book points to our Creator, we, we weren't created to do that. We weren't created to live alone. We weren't created to be disconnected. And the cool thing is, is that God has given us these 12 steps, which is a process for us. And this process takes time. And God's cool with it. And God's cool with you choosing whatever you want to choose. He's cool with that too. Because what's most important is that your mind is able to renew and from that renewed mind, you get the power of choice. He's going to take care of the alcohol drinking problem, but you get to choose, which is where we come to step three. I had to surrender and recognize that alcoholism was too big for me to try to defend on my own, walk away from this fight, and as this book says on page, it says, Remember that we are dealing with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it's too much for us. But there is one that has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care. Let's complete about it. If I'm willing to basically admit that I need spiritual help and come to God, he will protect me. He has protected me. That's why I stand before you. And he has taken care of me, and he's taken care of my kids and my family. And 
and he's given me a new life. And I, I don't even think about alcohol. It's the most beautiful part, you know? I don't think about it. I might, might live my life, as it says, faith without works is dead. I focus on good works. And one of the prescript, two of the prescriptions for us is carry this message to others and take others through the 12 steps. Those two prescriptions for this disease work. And that's what really fills me up today. Thank you. Well, I'm up here and as we'll say something. <laughs> um, thank you very much for your share. Um, can relate to many of it. Um, disconnected from family and friends. Of course, I thought I was very connected when I was drinking. I felt like I was on my game at that time. Um, <clears throat> I had a very interesting situation yesterday um, at work, you know, dealing with this problem Saturday and Sunday. And um, the problem continued on Sunday, and I had this hunch on Saturday night that I needed to go back, and Sunday morning I thought, I gotta go back, and I went back, uh, and, um, and there was this young guy there, um, in his mid-30s, and um, so proceeded to help him, realized it was the same problem that I had this hunch on, and so, you know, here I am going, okay, you know, the problem is his, blah, 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 not mine, I've already tested out my stuff. <clears throat> and this guy was just looking at me. You know, he speaks with his eyes. And I'm just kind of like, oh, God, what are you doing? Looking at me so, you know, I mean, because his eyes were very intent, you know, just, and, um, and so, I, you know, I kept on looking at him and I look away and, you know, and he was just all bright and happy and stuff, you know, and, um, you know, and I was all business, needing to get it done, resolving the problem, and I'm, te I'm showing him something, you know, and to find out I did something wrong, you know, and um, so, you know, I went into my spiritual malady of, oh, I'm off, I'm, I messed up, and blah, 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 and, you know, and um, what's wrong with me, I should know this. <clears throat> and um, so everything got corrected, you know, and he went on his merry way and he called me to let me know that all this stuff was great. And when he called, um, it came up with King Nicholas, right? And, um, and I had to laugh because his, his name is Nicholas, and he just put King in front of it, right, you know? And I had to laugh about it, and, um, and when I got in the car to, to leave the town I was in, um, I realized how disconnected I am to me, you know, to others. And I've been disconnected most of my life. And someone gave me a book a little bit ago uh, called The Lost Connection. And it uh, talks about, you know, not having connection with your tribe. And, um, and basically, you know, um, uh, Big Book Awakening is 
is my tribe. Um, but I'm still disconnected from it. I'm disconnected. Yesterday I realized I'm disconnected because I'm disconnected from myself. You know, I'm disconnected from my spirit. And, you know, and I have this uh, really huge hole in my system. And, um, you know, it's the spiritual malady. And it doesn't matter. I fill it with whatever is there to be filled. Now, God has um, worked miracles on me where I don't drink anymore. And that's not by choice. That's just what happened. You know, I don't eat anymore. That's not by choice. That is just what happened. You know, um, I am dealing with the, um, the emotional sobriety. And, and yesterday I was thinking, actually today I was thinking as I was driving, that um, how God has removed all this stuff, you know. And, um, and I don't have to do anything. And so I'm, I'm like, why, why am I even trying to uh, get emotional sobriety? You know, because um, in my experience, uh, my God, you know, when I ask, it happens. Um, sometimes not right away, and sometimes it is right away. Um, But I can get into this mental obsession, this mental stuff so, and it, the book tells me that that's where it starts, is, you know, the mental stuff before the, the physical stuff. And, you know, in my mind, when, when I get into hard times, and I know this, is that I have, you know, I want to go to the drink, I want to go to the cigarette, I want to, you know, uh, screw everything else. That's what I want. And and that's where my mind keeps on going. I've been watching myself over the last three years um, <laughs> since I had my trauma, had this big trauma in my life. Um, but um, so I have to really stay close to this because this mental exception will take me down. Um, thank you for letting me share. Keith Alcoholic. <clears throat> so I had a milestone last week and, uh, you know, passed that up. Been in and out of uh, these rooms for a number of years, uh, consecutively now. And that mental obsession is always TikToked, came up because it was a uh, uh, practice that I had when I was drinking. Uh, I had a daughter that passed away. Yesterday was the anniversary, and uh, it's National Daughters Day on Facebook. So, you know, you get the, as you wake up, the daggers that are just, and every year I would go, am I better or worse than I was last year? Did I, what did I do this year? And I woke up this morning, and I was driving to work, and I didn't do that yesterday. This BBA has got me in here and did a spiritual healing on me. And I didn't have that mental obsession. I wasn't focusing, going through life backwards, looking back to see what I had done wrong. I've turned around and I'm looking forward, thinking from my lessons that I've gotten 
and doing the work and doing the practices and being able to face that I had a beautiful person, an angel in my life for a small amount of time. And it made me who I am. Got me out of what I was doing, where I was headed. Like you say, I went to Bell Junior High. I was going to Morse High School. I got in a fight every day. I was one of 15 white people in an entire school. So the white privilege I had isn't the white privilege anybody else is talking about. I was a punching bag. And I learned to fight back, and I got good at it. So my dad beat me from the beginning. And I got to be good in football because that was my way of, of letting it go. But turning around and moving that, that car going forward instead of backing through life, today I realized that. You know, and I didn't cry yesterday. I'm crying tonight because I'm just a wuss sometimes. But um, I just, you have these things in life. And someday it just makes sense. And that morning, this morning on that drive, it made sense why I didn't have that yesterday. I finally got that spiritual hole in my chest filled up with enough temporary mortar and concrete that I don't have to go deep in that hole anymore. And the more I give it up to God and the more I keep coming back and giving back, um, the more it helps me out. And I appreciate every one of you. Thank you. Jay Alcoholic. The uh, mental obsession, um, you know, here's, that's, that's one thing this program gave me was it, it answered that, that question why I drank, you know, um, for 15 years and, and did the things I did and caused the pain that I caused and um, all that wreckage and, you know, pushed myself to right to the edge of destruction. And um, the whole time I never could answer that question, you know. My wife would say, why do you do this? You know, after multiple times of hurting her over and over and over again, she wanted a reason, you know, like, was I abused as a child? Like, is there, you know, what is it? You know, and then as years went by and kept going on, uh, you know, like she thought it was her, you know, um, she couldn't find any other reason why I drank and I couldn't either, you know, but, uh, you know, when I came in here and, um, started these 12 steps, <clears throat> learning about what is that mental obsession, you know? Because I was like, oh, this is a bunch of hocus pocus stuff, you know? Like, like, uh, you know, just go through the motions and, you know, say I do all these steps. And, you know, that just ended up getting me drunk again, you know? I didn't want to do what the program required, you know? I didn't want to get a sponsor, and then I surely didn't want to call him. Uh, I didn't want to hear what he had to hear, and I didn't want to talk to him about my day or... You know, it's, I was not an open-minded person, you know. I was still pri private and wanted to control everything. And uh, I wanted to get sober, and I was going to do it my way. Um, and, you know, year after year, I would keep relapsing. And, uh, you know, I think I was, I was on my second time through the steps and still relapsing. Um, but, you know, finally giving up that kind of control, you know, turning it over to God and understanding what that even meant. You know, what it meant to be powerless over alcohol and, and the unmanageability of my life, you know, that mental obsession was just driving it. And, um, you know, to me, it was like being possessed, you know. It's like the exorcist, you know. It's like I'm pretty sure I threw a pea suit quite a number of times. But, um, you know, that I don't have control, you know. Like, like you know, um, Luis read earlier, you know, I, had, I did not have a pow the power of choice and drink. I had no choice. 
And, and to me, that was really hard as, as a grown man to say, I have no choice. I have no control. You know, like to admit that. Uh, I, I couldn't grasp that concept because, you know, I was always like, it's my decision. I got in that car and I went and got alcohol because I, I wanted it. You know, like, all, like, I don't know where the transition happened from placing myself beyond human aid. You know, like I try to retrace my steps, not that it really matters, but I try to put a, you know, I try to pinpoint that on my timeline and I, I, I just can't, you know, I was like, well, I did quit for a year there one time. I was like, no, actually that was, that was nine months. Then I threw a kegger um, and uh, started drinking again. I never made it to the year. Um, and that was after getting arrested one night. Um, and thrown in jail and you know that threatened my career um but i thought i got this now you know after the kegger was over there was a you know 18 pack of budweiser or something in the fridge i would have one every night then it was two every night then it was three every night and within six months i was you know back to wanting to get drunk every night you know and geez that was in 2005 you know it wasn't until 2015 coming in here for the third time and really trying to grasp this 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 program and not really this program but this whole theory of a higher power and and how to tap into it you know like you know growing up I, I, I was you know Catholic I was an altar boy and I just thought it was what a good you know citizen does they go to church you know my grandparents went to church and never spoke about God outside of church all the neighbors went to church and then you know we socialized afterwards and I didn't really understand like that there was something really spiritual there, you know, um, <clears throat> and just thought people are just going to church and going through the motions, and it's just what you're supposed to do. Um, but it wasn't coming until I came in here and really understanding what God is, you know, and what God isn't. Um, but I mean, he, He's everything, you know, and uh, and years of trying to grasp this program and just wanting God in my life. You know, I, 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 what I wanted was I wanted God to meet me under the tree at noon and just tell me what he wanted me to do. You know, like I could handle that. Like I can't handle this, you know, just feel God, you know. But then, you know, <clears throat> as I had this, you know, I guess awakening um, one day, it, it just came to me all at once, you know. Um, I was like, wow, I just... I just can feel God. You know, I feel him in my gut. It's not like I hear a voice in my ear talking to me. Um, it's like I can feel him, you know, and he shows up in other people in my life, you know, and, and you know, he shows up in this program, you know, in the meetings, you know. When, when I feel strong emotions, like I want to, like I can feel what that person is feeling and I feel like the fellowship, you know, between us, um, to me that's the presence of God, you know. Um, and that's when that mental obsession started to lift. You know, I didn't feel the impulse, impulse to just go drive to the store. And, and as I think about it, you know, there were so many times where I was arguing with myself the whole way to the store. You know, what are you doing? Stop. Turn around. Don't do this. You know, and I just, it's like I wasn't even in the driver's seat. You know, I was not in control. The, the power of choice had been removed. I had no choice, you know. And, and towards the end, I had really just given up. I don't know what happened, you know, between it, that in that day, because, you know, um, it talks about in the book, you know, Dr. Young tries, you know, tells um, his patient that he's trying to affect that in him, 
with, with you know, no success. And, you know, I don't know how to affect it in someone else. It just has to happen. <clears throat> but, the, you know, the day that that happened, it was just like that mental obsession lifted. And I stopped trying to control everything. I, try, try, I stopped trying to say, this is my program. I'm going to do it the way I want to, you know. And, and I started getting success, you know. I started to feel what, it, what that peace and serenity, you know. Um, once I started letting go. And I stopped trying to control the whole thing. And I didn't care about who knew about it, whether work or family or, or anyone. You know, all I cared about was doing what it took to get sober. And, uh, all, and I found all those things that I was afraid of, you know, just, just never came to fruition. You know, I remember because I, I was in the Navy and uh, I was a, you know, mid-grade officer. And uh, I left my work, and there's a lot of important emails coming in. And the only option I had was to go next door to this emergency response center um, that I had volunteered, or not volunteered, I've been voluntold, uh, you know, once a month do monthly drills at this emergency response center. And I, the only place I could go to check my email, and I had to go escorted. And I finally, you know, swallowed my pride and said, okay, I have to go check these emails. So I, I got one of the people in the facility to escort me over there. And this guy that I had worked with before answered the door. I was like, what are you doing here? And, you know, kind of explained him the situation. I had only been in treatment maybe two weeks. And, you know, he took me over to the computer and sat me down and let me log in. And he goes, you know, I was a young Marine one time and uh, I almost lost my family. You know, I, I was suffering from alcoholism and I went into treatment myself, you know. and like that just hit me, you know, that was like a huge spiritual experience right there. And all of a sudden I could just relax, you know, like I wasn't stressed about him finding out or judging me, you know, because that had so much power over me for so many years, um, what people would think of me, you know. Um, and that was like probably one of the biggest um, roadblocks to my recovery. And that was like, I don't know magical to me, you know, it was, it was, it was a spiritual experience for sure. And, uh, you know, at that point I just realized, Hey, it's, you know, it's okay. You know, people have tough times. People go through their own trials. Um, and this is just mine, you know, and it's nothing to be ashamed about. So, and now I don't have to, you know, I have, you know, a choice today. Like I don't have to go buy a drink. I don't have to buy a bottle. You know, I have some level of control in my life as long as I work these steps, as long as I work, you know, do service, you know, help other alcoholics. Um, I, I know I can make it through today. So, thanks. It's a major imbalance. It's only two of us. So, in my book, that means that there should be my mental obsession becomes that if there's only two women and there's ten men, that it doesn't work that there's one and one. But that's okay, I'm up here, all right? I'm Janet and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I think I'm somewhat recovered. I'm not sure I'm recovered from mental obsession, though. I'm certainly recovered from the mental obsession to drink, that I can say for sure. Um, and uh, the sharing tonight's been great. Thank you, Louise, for your opener. That was really nice. It was good. Good to hear. It's nice, isn't it? You get to hear a little bit more about each person as you come to these meetings and you start to develop a sense of connection, which has been talked about tonight, because you feel like you know just a little bit more about that person. And in a way, that's um, intimacy 
you know, into me see. I'm about to bear my soul a little bit and tell you a little bit about me so you can see into me. And that's what I call intimacy, into me see. But um, I don't know where all that came from, but talking about the mental obsession, um, you know, I think, you know, <laughs> wow. I can remember as a teenager when I, let me start the, at, with this, you know, um, I, I might sound different, and I've got a different accent, but I'm just the same as all of you. <laughs> you know, uh, Australians are a nation of very heavy drinkers, and uh, many of us are alcoholics. Um, and, um, you know, when I was a little girl, I, I was addicted to excitement. I was highly strung. I remember that my parents, my father used to drink every night and on the weekends there would be the party that was planned for the weekend and my father would get really drunk. It was kind of controlled, heavy drinking I guess, alcoholic, don't know, but he would get really drunk every Saturday night. I wouldn't always see that but if the party was at home I would get to witness that and I loved the feeling. And when it was my time to go to bed, I used to throw a tantrum every time. I did not want to leave the party. I did not want to leave the party. And when I started drinking, that was me on alcohol. I'd get there and I didn't want to leave the party. I was always the last one dancing, trying to get everybody involved in, in getting, having a good time. I was that kind of a drunk. And um, I remember that when I picked up weed, which was really my first drug of choice um, in high school at the age of 13, I remember sitting daydreaming, drawing in my school diary um, little images and things that would, would represent this, how stoned I'd been the last weekend and then putting it forward into the next weekend. I mean, I was obsessed with the idea that I could take a substance into my body and it would relieve me of that addiction to excitement, which was really high anxiety. And I've come to learn that it's also, it was my way of escaping pain. I had, and we, I would suggest we all have, but I'm talking about me, because you're going to see inside me. But um, there's just shit that goes down when you're a kid and it's got trauma attached to it and it's pain and I don't want to feel that pain. I want to get away from that pain. So I smoked weed, great for that, when the weed wasn't quite so effective and I wanted to kind of be more part of the crew. I got involved with alcohol, I was drinking alcohol and taking you know, all the other drugs on board, all before the age of 18. And uh, I was obsessed with it. My life was planned around my drinking, my partying. That was the most important feature of my life. <laughs> I was fairly functional. I was a student and I got through a uni degree and I would go and I'd work as a physical educator, having been up all night partying getting on the oval, come on, let's go. I was this PE teacher with all this energy, still wiped out from the night before. God knows how I kept my jobs, but I did. And I was living the lie. I was pretending I was something that I wasn't. I was not the image of wellness and fitness. I was somebody who was abusing my body, escaping pain, 
and showing up in life like, hey, I've got this, I've got my shit together. And that's what my mother did too. She had a horribly unhappy marriage and she made everyone else outside think that we had a happy family. And we didn't. But everyone thought that we did. And when my parents uh, divorced, got separated in my late teens, everyone was amazed and surprised. They're like, what? They're Dougie and Patty, you've got to be kidding. They're like the ultimate happy family. Uh-uh. So, you know, all of, these, all of these lies and deceits and all of this stuff just kept my mental obsession fed with the need to keep running, to escape, to, to have some... At the same time of escaping, I'm trying to have some sort of control over how I was going to feel. And my way of, the way I did that was because I used drugs and alcohol to control how I was feeling. Because when I wasn't doing that, and I found this out, when I went away one weekend, when I was 19, after my parents had divorced or separated, and I was really in shock. It was like I couldn't put it together. And um, I didn't have any weed or, or alcohol. And I had a complete meltdown. So I came to the conclusion, always have weed in your back pocket and away by the alcohol. <laughs> you won't have to feel like that. I, my mental obsession was so deep and so uh, it came on so young. Um, I drank on and drugged on for 27 years. I remember stopping in my late 20s with the help of a um, counsellor, dealing with daddy issues, and I decided I'd stop. But I became mentally obsessed with all sorts of other things. I never did anything. Um, I never did anything in a moderate or balanced way. It was full on or not at all, and that's how I did that little stretch of sober life. I was obsessed and, and doing everything that I was doing then to the max. Um, and I was invited to a cocktail party by one of the people who I worked with in my physical education team. And I became obsessed with the cocktail. <laughs> am I going to go to this cocktail party and drink this cocktail? <laughs> or am I not? And that went on for like three weeks before this party. I did have that cocktail and it was a disaster because I immediately knew what alcohol did to me in that moment. I felt what it did to me and it, I didn't like the feeling. It scared me actually. And I managed to pull away from that party but then the obsession continued afterwards. You know, So they talk about that we have picked up a drink before we've picked one up. You know, sometimes uh, you can be already drunk before you get to the, uh, to the store to buy your alcohol and that's what I experienced in that particular window. It was like a couple of months of this obsession around one drink. I was so scared of what it would do and I was trying to impress a guy too so they just made it worse. Anyway, so I probably shared for long enough but I can so totally relate to it. What I'd like to finish with is this, is that even though I no longer have a mental obsession about drinking, I've come to understand the way in which the mental obsession continues in me if I'm not careful and I have to really keep myself in check. I know this is a little, this is not AA authorised but there's a man called Gabor Mete 
who shares about trauma and mental obsession of addictions. And it's a very interesting look in, because it kind of normalises things a little bit. You know, we are, the, we are so fortunate that we get to come to a 12-step program, be part of a fellowship and be fully supported in this. But the mental obsession is a big deal for most human beings, as it turns out. It's just how you apply it. And, and for me, what changed everything was allowing God in. When I realised that I was not in charge, that I was not the one that needed to control anything, that everything's fine just the way it is, it doesn't need my magic touch, then, you know, when I do that, then a lot of things resolve themselves. And uh, that's been a great relief because that right there is key to um, quietening down my propensity for mental obsession. So thanks for letting me share. The only magic you need is a spirit. No, um, I'm uh, Michael. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Um, gosh, uh, everybody was sharing so many different pieces of it that uh, I put a couple bookmarks in there, but Luis, thank you for going through the mental obsession and setting the stage for it. And then we were talking about some solution. We were talking about the spiritual malady. And I mean, it is our entire first step. So it's hard to talk about one part of it without drifting in and out of, of the other parts of it, because that's what my drinking and using looked like. That, that was, that was it. The mental obsession. What sort, when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, they probably place themselves beyond human aid. And um, that's a problem because I came from a family of like hard drinkers where given sufficient reason, they were cool with drinking or not drinking or moderate even, you know, they could, they could tone it down given the right uh, reasons. And I couldn't. And so there was a lot of guilt and shame around it. And I tried to, you know, my, my wife at the time was my security guard around my alcohol for quite a bit, you know, but she didn't realize that, and neither did I at the time, that physical craving is a real thing. And it's, it's kind of unstoppable after I take a drink, but the mental obsession would chase me around and clean and sober. And I thought that was a craving, but the way we look at it in the work is, that the physical craving is after I put it in my body. What's killing me is the mental obsession. After a while, I mean, probably by the time I was 20-ish, I knew that alcohol and I, and drugs and I, had this kind of weird, effed up relationship. Like, whew, something ain't right there. I can't stop, I don't wanna stop, but something ain't right there. So the evidence was there, but the mental obsession um, overwhelmed me every time. And that's actually a thing in the book, which when I really got into it and started to realize it, it helped to know that there's another piece of this beyond um, me just having a moral failing or I'm just not a good guy. If I was a good guy, I'd, I'd be able to moderate. You know, if I was a good guy, I'd be part of my family. It's not a moral failing. It's, a, it's a, an alcoholic thing. Mental obsession. Uh, the obsession is a thought that once it gets started in me, starts kicking in me, it's going to, over time, a day or a week or an hour, you know, by the, by the end of my drinking, I was making it till five o'clock and that was it. The mental obsession was already on me by like noon, one o'clock, and I was white knuckling it till the end of the day. But there were other times when I'd go a couple weeks and the mental obsession would build slowly over time. 
I would, I would talk myself into getting drunk. No, hey, that, that's not true. I would talk myself into having a drink. I would talk myself into getting a six pack and it would turn into a 18 pack by the time I made it to the grocery cart, like the mental obsession. And then that, that stuff leads us to the illusions. I look at the world a certain way and it's not, I can't see the truth from the false. And then the problem that's really driving it underneath and this I believe ties to, to the spiritual malady as well is the delusion, the lies I tell myself the lies about how I live my life, that someday I'm going to figure this out. Someday when all you guys get your shit scored away and quit pissing me off, you know, that day I'm going to quit drinking or I'll even moderate then because I won't need to drink because you guys are the problem, right? Oh, man. And over and over again, I end up drunk and it just repeats and I can't get out of it. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's alcoholism. And thank God you guys have a solution to that. But I have to walk through the book and have a couple of conversations with my sponsor about the physical part, the mental obsession, and then spiritual malady before I can even identify that I'm really an alcoholic and I need to work the rest of the steps. And the mental obsession too will tell me stuff like, just like in the book, there's, you know, there's two, at least two different places. It says, oh, thanks for the information. Man, this has been really informative. I, I'm an alcoholic, I'm not gonna drink anymore. And then I go on my merry little way and I get drunk and I don't understand why. Because the guarantee, and I mean, I hated hearing this, but the guarantee of the first step is I am going to drink again. I'm an alcoholic. That's what I do. If I, if I could figure it out on my own self-knowledge, on my own brain work, my own software, I wouldn't be here. I just wouldn't be here. I'd just say, oh, I'm, I'm done drinking, and I'd go on my merry little way. I've seen other people do it. I tried it, and I got drunk over and over again. So, mental obsession. That shit will kick, kick your ass. <laughs>
Jito. Happy birthday to you. Okay, so this token, you're going to give that to me. We'll get four minutes, so. Okay. I'm giving this one to David. Uh, we came in about the same time. He sat in the back like I did. And we both thought all you gringos were freaking mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah. And uh, as you put in David's words, that one of you goddamn people can relate to what I'm going through. <laughs> and over the time, everybody told our story over and over again. Uh, I'm proud to call you my friend. And here's your four years, man. Thank you very much. Okay, my name is David and I am an alcoholic. Amen. And uh, thank you, Luis, uh, for your sharing. Uh, the reason I'm saying this, and I didn't share before because I want to say this, you know, when I came to get my token. So like he, like he was saying, you know, he came here broken. I came to these meetings four years ago broken. And the first one that I saw in the meeting it was Luis. So that's the first one that he welcomed me in my sobriety this time. And I thank you with the bottom of my heart, Luis, for that day. Uh, Michael was there, they had a, a, a padlock, I think, that day was the anniversary of the group. And I still did, I still feeling dizzy, I didn't know what the hell was going on. You know, but I thank God every minute uh, for that day because Ever since, I am not the same. So I'm just going to share a little bit because, you know, you were talking about the, the, the mental obsession, you know. One time, you know, in the many times that I was seeing another Alcoholics Anonymous, I was in a meeting, and a big, big meeting. And all was what I was thinking in the meeting is what was the nearest liquor store that I had to go and buy my vodka. <laughs> to the entire meeting, and I start thinking, where is the near? And I was like 45 minutes away from my house, and I was not, not, not familiar with, 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 the, with the place, you know. So that was what the mental obsession was. The entire meeting, I didn't hear any, any, any sharing. I didn't understand anything what they were saying. All that was in my money was go to the liquor store. So, so that's exactly what I did. I get out of, of the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and I went directly to the liquor store and I made sure that I bought a, a, a six pack of Odoos to make sure, you know, that I have an excuse to my wife in case that she's going to smell my breath, you know. <laughs> I never, ever, ever, you know, and the whole entire thing started all over again, the sequel started all over again and the hell is with, uh, all over, you know, uh, make me me and everybody around me, merciful, you know, and I was restless until, you know, I become, again, to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, what, uh, one thing I had to say about the, you know, lifting the obsession, you know, I have, I work with a lot of booze, a lot of, you know, I was struggling in the beginning because I had to go and buy the booze, you know, and I was, yes, dying to have a drink, you know, but right now I have, booze all over the place, shells full, full, of, full of liquor, you know, and I cook with liquor all the time, and I don't even think of having a drink. You know, this is where this program came in. So I thank God, thank you, and uh, happy anniversary, kid. Okay, second token's going to me. So this is, uh, I'm going to give this, that you give it to me, to you. You know, and, uh, and uh, let me tell you, you are a big part 
of, of my recovery. You have no idea where you bald head and, and, and you cuckoo-roo-cuckoo <laughs> and, and your wife, you know, because she was a big part of my sobriety in the beginning. So, uh, so every time I have a little issue, a little problem, you know, I think about you guys and you, you come into my mind, you know, you share and how we do the program. So you you help me in more ways than what you think. So Keith, I appreciate it very much. Thank you very much. Keith Algolic. <clears throat> so yeah, four years. Um, when I drank, I, like Mike, I, I was a professional. Uh, I was uh, I divided and conquered. For, uh, Saturday night was a 40th reunion for my high school class at Bonita Vista the year after my class. Ours last year was canceled because of COVID. I got over 75 text messages Saturday to come down to the Murrietas to go to the bar. In the olden days, that knock would just be on my head until I was finally down there. Just gonna have one drink and then wake up in the parking lot or wake up on the way home or wake up at home with nobody next to me because I fell off the wagon again. It was that, like you said, that obsession to have that drink for the excitement. Half the text message, come down and make us laugh. I'm not that funny anymore. I don't drink. What I, what I thought was funny back then is stupid now. You know, I, I, you know, I got a life. I got kids. I, you know, I, I, got, I got. Talk about having a list to, to drink. I have two autistic kids after my daughter passed away. If anybody's got a reason to drink, it's me. But you know what? I turned out, I love my kids. I, I, I had one of my best friends in my entire life tell me, you got fucked up kids. You know you have fucked up kids, right? And I looked at him, I said, you know, they're my kids. So for you to tell me that my kids are fucked up, I don't need you in my life anymore. And that was the first trigger when I first went to my first Al-Anon meeting, the weekend after I got back, because I needed something. I, they call it going in the back door to Alcoholics Anonymous. I came in through that back door, and my sponsor, Bob from Temecula, speaks, if you ever been to a Temecula meeting at the Water Authority, Bob speaks from the heart, and he's, he's had a stroke, and he'll, he'll look at you and he just kind of stares and he goes, what are we going to do with your alcoholism? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I could stop at any time. Well, why don't you? He saw the spiritual malady when I didn't see it. He's been in the program so long. I mean, I've got a sponsor that's, that's going to the Friday meeting like clockwork now. And the first time I had a meeting with him on my job site, I said, the reason I don't come to you with a lot of questions is because you're an alcoholic. And I know what I'm going to tell you is going to go in one ear and out the other, and you're not going to absorb it. I knew it before he did. And you get to that point where you just kind of pick up on it. You're not supposed to do that, but you would just go so, so frustrated. And I've learned to bite my tongue, learn from, from this, and try and set that example to be a better man. And that's why I keep coming back. I've been here four years, by the grace of God, by people like David. David thinks we make fun of him when actually he's got one of the greatest sense of humors in these rooms. He makes me want to laugh more and enjoy life more. And that's why we're all in here. So we can just go out and try and have that normal life. You know, we see these people laughing and enjoying and having stuff and doing that stuff at a picnic. And all of us are going, God, I used to hide right over there and drink under that tree. Or we'd go over to the cars and smoke weed and, and you know, do whatever. But... That's what I just want to have. And for me to have that normal life, it's inside that blue book. Idiot's Guide to Life is what it should say on the front, and we'd all read it. If it was that, Dummy's Guide to Life. Everybody would read it, and we'd all have it. We'd all have it figured out. 
But we have a, bro a program and a book, and that's what I keep coming back for, so I can keep working at this. So thank you, guys. And that's all we have for uh, Cookies Chat. Cookies on the table afterwards. Okay. Thank you, Keith. Hi again, my name is David and I am an alcoholic. And that's all the time we have for sharing. Uh, quarters leave have been signed and you can pick them at the closing of the meeting. Let's uh, thank our speaker, Luis, for a wonderful uh, experience with his uh, mental obsession. And, and our leadership for, a, uh, uh, for leading a great meeting. Uh, this group like to support members. That's right. I'm going too fast, Shadi, no, it's my fault. The group like to support members that are speaking. Is anyone from this group speaking in the coming week? Anybody, no? I'm uh, leading the Friday 10 out 10 for the next month. If anybody like to join us down the street, and uh, I'm sure I'll be soon. Thank you, Keith. Uh, are there any announcements? No announcements? Okay, we have people in the group who are willing to, he to help coordinating coordinated sponsorship. If you are new and looking for a sponsor to take you to, through the steps, please see right now, I guess, Luis uh, after the meeting. Uh, snacks, we, have, uh, we need some volunteers, volunteer people for, to bring us cookies ne next week. Kid will do it. Thank you, Kid. Okay, our cleanup coordinator for this meeting is Luis again, so we need everybody to help him clean, clean up. Okay, reconnection of length, of length of sobriety is done in the last month of each month. To be sure you have a token for you, please see Keith after the meeting. Again, a, a warm wel wel welcome for the newcomers. I guess it's nobody. Okay, so we're glad you you have found us, and we hope we'll see you again next week. We will close uh, with the Lord prayers. Let's circle up. Let's circle up.
this, right?
If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe at eastlakebba.com. You can also help us reach others by spreading the word about our podcast. Thank you for joining us today on the East Lake Big Book Awakening Podcast.